0: So very glad to have you. If you, um, you should have gotten one of these as you came in today, it's our gift to you today. It's a, um, a devotional, a prayer guide for your life with God, and this is volume two. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John uh, as a church, just individually, uh, or with our families. There's family worship guides in there as well. But this was produced by our amazing writing team, and uh, so thankful for them. This is truly... Uh, a great, great devotional. As a, my wife and I have had the privilege of editing it, it's so good. Um, it starts tomorrow, so there is a volume one. If you don't have volume one, we can also get that to you. It's the blue cover, but the yellow cover starts tomorrow. And so, if you're looking for a way to have an intentional life with God, you're looking for the first step towards um, just having something to pray. Uh, some way to study the Bible, this is a great first step. You can start tomorrow literally with the rest of the church, and you can have a section of Scripture to read. Then there is a uh, short devotional to help you focus in on one thing. A prayer, if you don't know how to pray, you don't know how, what words to say, you can start by saying the words that someone else wrote. And then there's a journal question Alongside this, we have the Gospels of John journaling Bibles, and so if you didn't get one of those when Volume 1 came out, please grab one of those as well as our gift to you. So those are, those are outside. If you didn't grab one when you got a bulletin, make sure you get one of those and join us um, in the coming weeks as we go through that together. Alongside that, we're going to be finishing up a series today and starting a new series next week on the I Am Statements of Jesus. And so uh, as we go through the Gospel of John, there's a number of times where Jesus says, I am, harkening back to the Old Testament where God said, I am that I am. And Jesus says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd and a number of others. And so we're going to be looking at those as we lead up to the season of Advent as a way to kind of situate ourselves in the Gospel of John that we're reading together Uh, individually as well. So that starts next week. This week, we're finishing up a series that we've called Beyond Surviving. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 42. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 42. We're going to be looking today at intentional neighboring. And... uh, the idea behind this series as we started in the middle of restarting our gathered worship service was that I felt and sensed and heard that many of us had a wrecked spiritual life and we were wondering what does it mean to actually follow God and I feel like a lot of my uh, intentional life with Him has been kind of destroyed by all the things that, that have been going on in the pandemic and so how do we rebuild that? How do we begin to move towards that? And that's been the heart behind this. And so we've looked that at at first at an intentional life with God starts with the individual. It starts with us being responsible as people before him to follow him. And so we looked at intentional soul care for a couple of weeks. And then we said that that branches out from the individual into the family. So we looked at intentional marriage and intentional parenting. And then it goes from the individual to the family to the rest of the world. So we looked a couple of times ago, intentional responsibility, the things that God has given us to do, our workplace, our jobs, our other responsibilities. And then last week we had Pastor Tyson here talking about intentional identity. That was not part of the plan. I was supposed to be here, but I had a little bit of a cold on Saturday night, uh, last Saturday night. Of course, pastors always get sick on Saturdays when it's the most inconvenient time. Um, and so I figured that you probably didn't want me sneezing and coughing at you uh, on a Sunday. So he, thankfully he stepped in. And negative COVID test on Monday, so all good there. But um, today, as we finish up this series, we talk about being a good neighbor. We've gone from the individual to the family to the outside world and our responsibilities. What about this biblical idea of being a good neighbor? It's talked about a lot, Old Testament, New Testament. And that's what we're going to read about here in the very famous passage of the, the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, verse 25. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when they saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came, When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. So when I say the word televangelist, what does that do inside of you? (laughs) I know a lot of you would not have a positive association with that word, televangelists, an evangelist who's on TV. Many would have a negative reaction. It were calls to mind, uh, images of someone uh, making you call on an 800 number to phone in some money uh, to get a blessing. Maybe there's a promise of healing or a promise of change that might happen. And so many of us have a negative reaction when we say televangelist. Now let me give you a couple other words. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What does that do inside of you? To me, that brings in a very calming feeling. Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, a TV show that comforted kids for like four generations, four decades. But what many people don't know is that Mr. Rogers was, by definition, a televangelist. Um, He was a Presbyterian pastor, not the same Presbyterian branch that we find ourselves in, a different one. But he was a Presbyterian, and one of the things that that Presbyterians do is they have pastors who have calls. That is their job description, basically. So I'm called to be the pastor of New Valley Church downtown. Um, But Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers' call was evangelist to TV. That was his official position. Now, he didn't bring fire and brimstone. Uh, I don't think PBS would have allowed that. Um, And he didn't even give a specific gospel call to become a Christian or anything. But that was his evangelism. He shepherded many people for the last generation, myself included, through a TV show that was focused on being a neighbor, being a good neighbor. And I was thinking about this week, it's impossible for me to say that word without recalling uh, the image of him to my mind. I thought, why, why, was, why was that such a neighborly show? Why did it feel like a real neighborhood? What is it about him that helped us feel like we were in a neighborhood together, the whole world? And uh, I wrote a few things down. It's that he focused on dignity, the dignity of the, of the person. Uh, the dignity of the child, he addressed topics that were taboo to talk about, and yet he did so in such a gentle way to talk about divorce, talk about racism um, in a way that was helpful and, and meaningful to children. Uh, he had just had general gentleness, he had an impulse towards listening rather than speaking or talking down on people. He had a real care for the least of these as, as uh, he had many people on the show who were disabled. Um, any number of things like that that showed that he was creating this neighborhood of goodwill. And it, w- it affected all of us. Um, even the production value of the show seemed to reinforce that. It's right? so low production, just like handmade puppets, very dimly lit set. It just felt like you were at somebody's house who loved you and cared for you. Brett McCracken, he's a Christian writer for um, the Gospel Coalition. He said, this about Fred Rogers, he didn't think that goodness needed to be presented with a wink. Meaning, there's no cynicism. There's no like, oh, this is what you should do, but this is what you actually do. And you think about The Simpsons, or Rugrats, or any of the shows, and they're all filled with this kind of cynicism and sarcasm, and he didn't have any of that. So many people wonder, um, why, why isn't the church more like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? why are people not like more like Mr. Rogers if they claim the name of Christ to be a good neighbor surely is the idea that scripture tells us that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves it's the second great commandment why is it that we struggle to do that and i want to wrestle through that a little bit this morning both on the positive and the negative side i mean after all it was a tv show that had 30 minutes to present all of life and that's not a fair comparison and Ultimately, I think Jesus teaches us to be a good neighbor through Himself, but we need to sit and listen as well. So I want to ask that question. What does it mean to be an intentional neighbor? The way that the Scriptures talk about it. And what I want us to see today is this. Your neighbor needs three things from you. Your neighbor needs three things from you. Those are three things that Jesus highlights here in this passage. And the first one where I'll spend most of our time this morning is Attention. Your neighbor needs your attention. Who gets your attention? One of the questions that drives this whole passage is Who is my neighbor? It's the question that the lawyer asked in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus Who is my neighbor? What he wants to do there is he wants to limit the idea of his responsibility in the world to a few people so that he can know how to fulfill the command that is given from the summary of the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? That's a valid question. Give me some definition. I understand that question personally. I like that question, if I'm honest. I want to know What's my responsibility so I can make sure I can tick off that box? And what Jesus does is he, over this story, expands the idea of neighbor to be an impossible, <laughs> impossibly big burden. And he does that for a particular reason that we talk about. But first, who is your, so who's your neighbor? First, it's the one in your circle. The one in your circle. That's the assumption behind today's passage. It's what everybody would have agreed upon as the man says... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament. He had a very clear understanding of what the neighbor was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was, uh, Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And so if you were in the tribe of Benjamin, then your neighbor was, was Benjamites because that's where you lived. They were divided in the promised land according to their tribes. They lived together with the people who they were related with or distantly related with. And who were brought in from marrying from other tribes. And so people knew who their neighbors were. People that were closest to them. The people that they related with. And that's still who we often think of as our neighbors. Our neighbors are the people who are close to us. People in our circles. When we say neighbor, you probably automatically think of a next door neighbor. Or someone that lives close to you. And scripturally speaking, that is true. So the first question to us, the first challenge that we have to ask ourselves, even though Jesus is going to expand the idea of neighbor, is that that, do we even take the first thing, the first most basic level, seriously? Does our neighbor have our attention? The people that we are closest to already? The people that God has placed us around? Maybe even our exact neighbor. When we were uh, replanting this church in 2018, we stopped our worship services, went back into my living room, did some training, and one of the things that we talked about was this idea of loving our specific neighbors, inviting them to church. We used a challenge that you could call the hashtag challenge, or the, you think about tic-tac-toe, the pound sign. You think about your, the pound sign is in front of you, and you think about the center square of the hashtag is your house and then you look at the houses that are around you, or if you're in an apartment, think about it, just get creative, you know, above you and to the side of you, below you. Um, do you know the names of the people that are around you? That would be a first challenge. What else could you figure out about them? What else do you know? Are you basically all the same as the people around you, or are you basically all different? When I look at my neighborhood, it's, it's very different. It's like... You know, gay artist, uh, wealthy Catholic, uh, probably drug dealers, um, you know, uh, mentally ill and un, you know, unemployed person, two pastors. I mean, that, that's like the neighborhood that I'm, I'm in. Is it the same for you? Is it, is, it, is it different? Who's your neighbor? The people in your circle. And the first question would be, do you believe that God's put you where he's put you? On, on purpose. Do any of those people have your attention? Not just the person in your path. Jesus expand, or The person in your circle expands the definition to the one in your path. Because Jesus clearly in this passage is not just talking about our physical neighbors. As he asked the question at the end, who do you think proved to be the neighbor? He was talking about the person who took care of this person who was beaten. The one who noticed him in his path. And this is where the religious leaders in the story fail. The priest and the Levite. In verse verse 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, that is the man who's left half dead on the road, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. You have these two individuals who see this man and they, it's in their path, but they pass by on the other side. They don't take care of him. They are not, in Jesus' words here, neighbors. Why? Why did they pass by him? We actually don't know for sure, but it could be a couple of different reasons. It could be for either purity or for safety. It could be purity. Both of these are religious leaders, priests and Levites. And the law code if they touched a dead body, they would be unclean for seven days. Presumably, they're going through this, this passage so that they can present themselves at the temple and do whatever it is that God's called them to do. And so they're thinking po- possibly about their purity, about how clean they can be to perform the works of God. Perhaps it's not about purity. Perhaps it's about safety. It's a very dangerous passage. It's dangerous even still today. If you go through this same passage that's talked about here, you can still be robbed. It's very desolate, and there's lots of places to hide. And everybody knew that. And so everybody took that road cautiously. And they knew that thieves were devious, just like they are in our day. And they knew that perhaps someone was put out there in the road like a decoy there's this hurting person. If you stop to help them, two other thugs jump out from behind a rock and take advantage. It happens still today, right? The, the, the whole scam of the person pulled over on the side of the road who needs help, and there's people waiting beside it. happened in that day as well. So for whatever reason, for purity or for safety, these pass by. And Jesus says, they don't prove to be a neighbor to this person, because they valued that safety or that purity above who God had put in their path. Do You see, the neighbor is the person, not just who's in your circle, who you're comfortable with, who you might know, but the person that God presents you with in a moment. Being a good neighbor means that we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. As we wake up, we recognize that He may put needy and hurting people in our paths. He may interrupt our schedules with with things that need our attention, with people who need our attention. Continuing in the expansion of the definition of neighbor, it's not just the one in our circle, and it's not just the one in our path. To give it its most expansive form, he says here, it's actually the one on the, quote, other side. It's the enemy. It's the person that you want to love and be a good neighbor to the least. He does this, of course, by saying that this person who helped the man on the side of the road was a Samaritan. Enemies of the Israelites. Close neighbors, and yet hated. The Scriptures tell us the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings with Samaritans. Why? Because they were close, close to their ethnicity, but not all the way. They were close to their religion, but not all the way. They were close neighbors, but they practiced in slightly different ways, and they had slightly different genetic makeups. And so they were hated. And it's, it's become somewhat expected for us, as we've heard this story over and over again, to, to see this Good Samaritan, to have hospitals named after Good Samaritan, But you have to to feel that that's like us saying the good Nazi, you know, good Nazi hospital. When verse 33 happened, when Jesus tells the story, He says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. the, The ominous music begins. This is where the bad guy enters. In the minds of the hearers. And yet, of course, this one proves to be the hero of the story And the lawyer at the end can't even bring himself to say the name Samaritan. He simply says, the one who is the neighbor is the one who showed him mercy. Who's your neighbor? It's the one on the other side. It's the enemy. We have to recognize that the neighbor who needs our attention is often the one that, for us, is hardest to give attention to. The one who is completely different from us. (coughs) Who is different from you? When you think about your workplace, when you think about your places where you have recreation, when you think about this church, who is different from you? Who rubs you the wrong way? Who do you not like when they post on social media? That may be the very person that you're called to be a neighbor to. Surely this is part of the answer to the divisions that are so racking our, our church, big big sea church. And thankfully, we don't have a lot of division here, but I, I know it exists in us, it exists everywhere. Political division, tensions over the ways that we're approaching things. There's so much division. Surely this is part of the healings that we recognize that we're called to be neighbors to one another even though we are different from one another. And there is one question that challenges us no matter what our political assumptions are, no matter what we think would be best to heal our nation or anything else, there's a challenging question here for us. And the question is this, do you actually care about helping people or do you just want to justify yourself? Because the lawyer here We're told, wants to justify himself. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? He wanted to feel okay. He didn't want to necessarily even want to be a good neighbor. This whole thing is set up because he wanted to test Jesus, desiring to test him. How do I inherit eternal life? When it comes to the divisions and the hurt that, it, that we're all experiencing right now, the basic question is, do you desire to justify yourself or do you desire to help and be a good neighbor? Let's take something non-controversial like racism in our country. The evil of racism shouldn't have to be said out loud, but it does. It's abhorrent. Wherever it exists, it's abhorrent. It's the called out in Scripture as an evil. We agree on that. There's a lot of disagreement in the church about how we approach this and how much it's blown up. Isn't there lots of opinions going around and lots of people posting in one direction or the other. I, I notice this is going to be broad. Uh, you may fit in in a different way of looking at it, but broadly speaking, I notice a lot of Christians, some of them... Are emphasizing preservation and some of them are emphasizing activism. Some are emphasizing preservation. They say, of course racism's bad, but, you know, let's, let's be careful to preserve our society. Let's be careful to preserve the police and not uproot that. And let's be careful to, to not... Um, upset other things and, and maybe align ourselves with political organizations that are anti-Christian. Maybe let's be careful that, we, that in the process of, of taking care of this, we don't uproot other things. We don't seed ground to the sexual revolution or whatever it may be. There's a preservationist impulse. There's an activist impulse that says, no, no, no. Let's not preserve anything, let's uproot, let's let's turn things over, let's expose things to the light. Let's see how far it goes, let's not cover up evil or be silent. And what is apparent about both of these broad groups is that both of them feel like they're caring for people and both of them feel like they can take the moral high ground and try to. Both appear to care, but here's a question to wherever you find yourself, whatever impulse you have in that argument. Here's the question. Do you actually care about people or do you care about justifying yourself? Both could be guilty. Both can definitely be guilty of justifying themselves. Perhaps the preservationist has a temptation towards not upsetting their apple cart, not wanting anything to change, not... Being uncomfortable with, with anything that's other than the, the status quo. And there can be a shoving out of new ideas because you really want to justify yourself. In the activist camp, there can be a temptation to not really care about people, but to care about how you look in front of people. To just make sure that you're on the right side of history. Make sure that you're saying things exactly right. That you're inclusive enough. And and really what what you're signaling is not a care for people, but a virtue of yourself. See, both sides, whatever the issue is, that's just one issue. There's a temptation to justify ourselves rather than care for others. And where does that come from? It comes from a desire to be okay. I'm okay. I found myself in the right spot. It's the same desire that draws the lawyer. I want to be okay. Tell me that I've checked off the box. But in reality, what Jesus does here is He explodes the box and tells us, hey, you know what? You should pay attention to the people around you, to the people that God may put in your path, and even to your enemies. I mean, it's endless. We're all one people. We're all God's creatures. We're supposed to care. But in that care, there's so much burden. Do you feel the burden of that care? What do you do with the burden of that? Do you try to minimize that so you can justify yourself? Or do you come and say, I need something bigger than me to carry this burden? That is the gospel. Because you cannot fulfill this commandment. You cannot. You cannot fulfill the first commandment. The lawyer doesn't even try with that one, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Wow. That's the first and great commandment. Why doesn't he say, well, how can I love God with all my heart? He knows how burdensome that question is, but for some reason, he he zeroes in on the neighbor, the second commandment of the law, second great commandment. Seems a little more attainable, doesn't it? But even that, Jesus says, is not attainable. To be able to love your neighbor as yourself is something that you cannot do. To give your attention is something that you're not capable of doing. But it's what your neighbor requires from you. To be a good neighbor, you need to give him attention. Secondly, and more quickly, we'll move faster here, you need to give your resources. Your neighbor needs resources. I love that the first impulse of the Samaritan is compassion, verse 34. Verse 34. Verse 33 at the end, he says, when he saw him, he had compassion. And that's often what we equate to being a good neighbor, isn't it? Being compassionate. You care about people. But notice that he doesn't just stop with compassion. He gives of his resources. He gives time. It's not the case that the Samaritan didn't have anything else to do with his time like the Levite and the priest. Of course, he was crossing a dangerous area for a purpose. Why else would he be there? He had a schedule. He gave up his time. He gave up his money. He gives out of his own purse to care for this man. He even gives his words and his reputation. Why? Because I don't know about you, but if I'm an innkeeper and I receive this bloody mess of an an individual and I have to take care of them and somebody says, hey, I'll come back later and pay for this, I'm going to have some questions. I'm going to need some collateral, right? But this man just receives it. Almost certainly this Samaritan was well known in the community. Almost certainly he was a person of integrity and he uses that integrity towards the good of this broken and hurt individual. Time, money, words. Words so important for caring for a neighbor. I watched a documentary on Netflix called uh, "Speed Speedcubers. Anybody seen that? It's a story of These competitions of Rubik's Cube people who who solve them very fast and how quickly they can do their time. And I cried through the whole thing. Um, It's a real tearjerker. I mean, if you think that a documentary about a Rubik's Cube can't bring you to tears, then I defy you to go watch this. Um, Because it's really not about the competition, right? It's about the friendships that are created there. And this guy named Felix. He's a world champ and he's from Australia and he's got all these records and yet he's kind of growing up and maturing and he's kind of getting a new job and everything and so he's not as into it anymore and Max Park is another, um, another competitor from America and he, he is autistic and so this, this speed competition is everything to him and it's a story of, of how Felix is, is caring for Max and even as Max breaks his world records, he's texting him encouragements, telling him how awesome he is and it's just amazing to see how this, this different parts of the world uh, and enemies are neighbors to one another. It's amazing. Your, ne- your neighbor needs your attention. Your neighbor needs also your, res- your resources, your time, your energy, your money, your words. One way to apply this is to ask ourselves, which of the three things that I just mentioned are you most willing to give and which are you most reluctant to give? Some of us are willing to go anywhere and be anywhere for anyone. We're willing to serve. We're willing to show up and be present. But the moment that something affects our pocketbook, we're out. Some of us are the exact opposite of that. We're totally willing to write a check. But the moment that helping someone disrupts the schedule that we've already cre- crafted for ourselves that makes us feel successful and I, I identify as a good person, then that's when the idolatry comes in because we can't be disrupted. Others of us are, are willing to use our words, we're willing to praise people, encourage people, we're willing to get online and say the right things. But when it comes to actually helping a situation with our time or money, We're not as willing to show up. Which are you most reluctant to give and which are you most willing to give? I say all this today to show us the impossibility of it to be a, a neighbor. What we're commanded to here is to give attention to those who are closest to us and even to our enemies, to give our time, resources, money. It's overwhelming to think about, and it's so important then to see this third thing that your neighbor needs and that you need. It's Jesus. Your neighbor needs Jesus. And in order for you to be a good neighbor, you need Jesus. Being a good neighbor means way more than being Mr. Rogers. It means way more than making the world a better place, joining hands, being good, Maybe you're wondering why I included the story of Mary and Martha at the end of our reading today. We haven't really talked about it today. We don't have time to unpack it. But I wanted to read it for you because I think it's very interesting. I discovered this a few years ago as I was reading through this passage that Luke, as he arranged his gospel, puts these two stories next to each other. We have this lawyer at the beginning of our passage in the Good Samaritan saying, This is the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then he focuses on neighbor, as we've already said, because it's attainable in his mind. And Jesus destroys that. But I love how Luke returns back to the first commandment with the next story. But let's not forget the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll notice the hero of the Good Samaritan is the person who served, who was a neighbor. But the hero of Mary and Martha is the one who gave up serving to sit at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is distracted with much serving. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? But Jesus says, one thing is necessary. You've forgotten the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that mean? It means this. Serving is a necessary outpouring of the Gospel. The Gospel comes first. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Being served by Him then creates our identity. We don't serve so that we can build an identity of service. We have an identity in Christ that teaches us how to serve. Very important. Very important. Very important that we always keep that the right way. And you know who understood that perhaps better than others was Mr. Rogers. In the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Mr. Rogers, great documentary. They described the scene when he's on his deathbed. And Mr. Rogers, when he's on his deathbed, Fred Rogers, he asks a specific question. He says to his wife, am I a sheep? Am I a sheep? What is he talking about? He's referring to Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus talks about the end of time separating of the sheep and the goats. And on his deathbed, Mr. Rogers was not content that he had created a neighborhood where millions of people grew how, in how they love each other and serve one another and are compassionate to one another. What he was wondering about is, was that enough? Have I done enough? And the documentary gives the exact wrong answer, by the way. His wife's response to him, perhaps it was edited, I want to honor her, perhaps she said more and they just cut it out. But the answer that they give and the answer to the, the sum of the documentary was, if anyone is, you are. If anyone is a sheep, you are. Why? Because you're the best of men because you're a good neighbor, and you've done all these wonderful things. But Mr. Rogers knew enough of his own experience to have that question at the end. Have I done enough? This person who spent his whole life cultivating a neighborhood on screen. Was it enough? It's not. It's not. Why? Because you are not able to such a task. The scripture says, our righteousness is even, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even our neighboring is so flawed. Do you not feel the weight of being a good neighbor and loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer cannot be that you're a sheep because you're good, because you're a good neighbor. You cannot serve your way into the kingdom of God. Who is a sheep then? The sheep is the one who sits down at the feet of Jesus, who receives his work, his service first, who has an identity in Christ first, and then is a good neighbor because of what Jesus has done for him or her. It requires first a ceasing from striving. A ceasing from trying to be everything that Jesus is. You're responsible for the whole world being a neighbor. But can you, are you able to rise to that task? You're not. We can barely be good neighbors to those who are around us. We can barely be good neighbors to those who are in our circle or on our path. Much less all of the world of which we are part, that God has made us part of. And so we need to remove that burden from our shoulders and put it on the shoulders of Christ and come and sit at his feet and be served by him because the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In giving his life, he served us in the way that we could not serve ourselves. And when we're in him first and we sit under his feet, he teaches us how to serve others. But it's essential that we not get that backwards. That we come to him as needy people that are taught to be good neighbors. Only by his grace. Let's pray. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We feel the burden of the law this morning. Even specific situations rising up in our minds of neighbors that we don't know, friends that we may have abandoned on the side of the road in their time of need. The impossible weight of a country divided politically, economically. We bring these burdens to you this morning knowing that you're the only one who can lift them from us. Your burden is light. Your way is filled with mercy and grace. Your yoke is not burdensome. So we pray that you would Lift off of us the care of the neighbor. Put it on yourself, and then teach us how to be properly burdened, not where we're depending on that for our identity and salvation, but where we see opportunities to love and show mercy out of the love and mercy we've been shown. Secure us in our identity this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.